the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Well, folks, welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, it's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, let me uh, tell you about Pete Paquette. He's our engineer, gets us on the air beautifully every uh, every weekend. Uh, Andrew Herdliska produces the show for us. And I'm happy to welcome Dr. Sam Storms to Orlando. He's in Oklahoma City, senior pastor at Bridgeway Church. Uh, he helped put together a, a book, a devotional for men, Daily Strength, uh, a devotional for men. Uh, and Sam, first of all, I want to welcome you to Orlando and tell you that I'm looking forward to our chat. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. I've been looking forward to this. Well, thank you, Sam. Tell me about uh, the importance of devotionals for men. Well, I think that, uh, yeah, and I'm glad, we, let's just emphasize this, uh, this one is for men. Uh, Crossway actually has a companion volume for women. And sadly, it seems to me that women are a little bit more consistent and inclined to daily be in the Word of God, and I think that's it's wonderful for them, but it's sad for us. I think men need to understand um, the incredible value of daily discipline in the Scriptures. Uh, unfortunately, all too many men, professing Christian men, you know, they'll dip into the Bible here and there. They may open it on a Sunday morning during the sermon, but... They aren't feeding their souls and being transformed by the power of God's Word on a daily basis. And that's kind of the um, the, the mentality, the philosophy, the desire behind this entire um, book called Daily Strength is we want men to wrestle with the Word of God, to be challenged, encouraged, convicted, strengthened, uh, educated, everything, inspired, everything that uh, we so desperately need just to survive and thrive in this world. So I hope men will take uh, take this to heart and that they will commit themselves. It doesn't take very long, but just a few minutes every day, immersing themselves in Scripture and in these devotional studies, which are just really, really excellent. And they're carefully crafted. They're beautifully written. They're biblically sound. And um, I think they're life-changing. Sam, <clears throat> how does the Word of God feed one's soul? How does that work? Well, you know, there's a, a passage in Hebrews thirteen nine that says it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Um, we are, um, by nature, weak when it comes to our pursuit of the Lord and our pursuit of holiness. And this is the way God has ordained for all people, male and female, uh, to grow up in Christ. He said, I'm, I want to provide you with truth, and I want to empower that truth through the, the, the Holy Spirit, enlightening your mind, opening your eyes and your heart 
to the reality of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And he does it through his written word. You know, I remember Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, sanctify them your, uh, in truth. Your word is truth. So God takes uh, the, the, the revelation of his will, the revelation of his heart, uh, the kind of God he is for us in Jesus, and it's inscripturated. It's there in the text. And the Spirit of God takes that. He opens our eyes and our hearts to it. And that's the process of transformation. Um, and it's very interesting. I, um, before every sermon, I, I don't think I've ever failed to do this, at least here in my years at Bridgeway Church. Before every sermon, I pray Psalm 119, verse 18, where the psalmist said, Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your word. And that's what I pray for men who, who might choose to pick up this uh, this daily devotional guide, is that they would pray, Lord, open my eyes, because my eyes are so captivated by everything else around me. A lot of things I shouldn't be setting my eyes upon, and my eyes need to be open. I need enlightenment from the Spirit. I need the Spirit of God to quicken my, my thinking, my will, awaken my affections, so that I can see the wonderful things in God's Word. And I think God gives us the promise that when we do that, we will experience transformation. We will find that that we have new values, that we have a new perspective on life, that we have new energy to love our wives and our kids and uh, to be faithful in our jobs. Uh, that's just the promise that the Lord has made. He uses His Word through the power of the Spirit to make us more like Jesus. Sam, what happened in your life uh, for you to get really excited and enthusiastic about God word, God's Word? Was there an incident that happened? You know, I don't know if there was one single incident. Um, I was saved very early in life. Um, I can't even exactly remember when, but early eight, nine years old, perhaps. Um, I think probably um, what really awakened me to the power of God's Word were several men whom God brought into my life during my uh, early years in college and then when I went to seminary. And I just I sat in their presence and watched them and listened to them as they unpacked scripture line upon line, and I had never I'd, you know I'd never seen the Bible in that way. I mean, I when I grew up, we used to have what they were called what they called sword drills, and they would have a bunch of young people stand on a stage with their Bibles and they'd shout out a verse, and whoever could find the verse in the Bible first would win. I did pretty good at sword drills. The problem was. I wasn't actually reading the text that I could find. Mm. And uh, it was largely through the influence of these godly men as they began to teach and exhort me that I think just lit a fire in my heart for Scripture. And then all through seminary and throughout my ministry these past 48 years, I've, uh, I, just, I just come alive. God's Word just ministers to me. God is faithful. I mean, if, if we commit ourselves in humility to understanding the revelation He's made of Himself, in the Bible, uh, he promises that he will bring transformation. He will not leave us to ourselves. I'm interested in this devotional. Uh, it, it includes at least one devotion for every book of the Bible. Uh, how did that work out? Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting process. Uh, there are 365 of these devotionals, and um, I, working together with the team at Crossway, we contacted um, some of the leading uh, individuals that we know of in our lives personally and around the world 
these are these aren't just scholars and theologians, although several of them did contribute. These are pastors. These are business leaders. Uh, these are individuals who have um, who have really profound insight into Scripture, and so we would um, uh, we would find a particular passage uh, throughout the. Let's, so let's just take for example. Uh, I did, uh, I think I said, I did seven or eight devotionals in the book of Joshua. And so we looked for texts that were uniquely suited to the challenges that men face today. What are the temptations that men are confronting every day? What, are the, what, 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 is, the, what is the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to accomplish in the lives of Christian husbands and fathers and uh, businessmen? And so we identified those texts, and then we... Uh, had these individuals write the devotionals based on those particular passages of Scripture. So that's the wonderful thing about this devotional guide, is you're not just reading uh, the reflections of of men uh, or of pastors. Um, You're being taken through the Bible. In other words, if you follow through with it from beginning to end, you'll come to the end with a pretty good understanding of the flow of biblical redemptive history, and you'll have a deeper grasp on God's purposes. Um, so that's kind of how we did it, and they're spread out. Obviously, longer books have more devotionals. Um, I did the ones in Joshua and Jonah, and uh, the individuals that we uh, brought on board for this, they are an incredible group of men who really have insight, and I think we'll, I think men will find this incredibly helpful to their lives. Dr. Sam Storms is our guest. He's in Oklahoma City, a pastor there. We're talking about his book, Daily Strength, a devotional for men. Sam, if you were to steer a, a, a relatively new Christian man uh, to spend time in one book of the Bible to really get grounded, uh, what book would you steer him to? Oh, wow. That is a question, isn't it? Oh, you limit me to one? <laughs> yeah, one book um, for, for a new Christian who's... Because I'm, yeah. Sam, I'm going to tell you a little story. Uh, just like okay. you, I had a, a a veteran Bible teacher. I was a fairly new Christian, and uh, Dr. Lehman Strauss was his name. And this was uh, July 1st, 1975. And he said to me, uh, how are you doing in your study of the Word of God? And I had a fumble. Well, not all that well. I'm. Mean, what, what do you recommend? <laughs> and Dr. Strauss said... I want you to forget 65 books in the Bible, and and for the next month, I want you to read the book of James once a day, every day for the month of July. And uh, he said, you can use different translations, uh, but he said, at the end of the month of July, you're going to feel like the book of James is yours, like you own it. Mm -hmm. So I followed his counsel, uh, 1975, that that was almost 50 years ago. And uh, and and I feel whenever I encounter James, I can say July nineteen seventy five. I've spent a month with you, James, and I feel yeah. I feel like you're mine. And then he said, "You can go on to Philippians and other those other of those shorter books." He said, "That'll keep you going for about a year." But uh, so the book of James, is, Sam, an answer to my own question <laughs> was, was yeah. The, I, I think I could give a couple of answers. I think. I think if men are needing just practical guidance in um, in dealing with issues in life, James is perfect. That's a great place to begin. Mm-hmm. I would say to I would say to another. Let's say that somebody is really confused theologically, and they need to know the, the, the nature of the gospel. I'd say do it with Romans. 
uh, if it's a pastor who maybe is struggling in his ministry and he's being maybe he's not um, being warmly affirmed by his congregation or he's being criticized, I think they should take Second Corinthians. And then if another one is just questioning, you know, the goodness of God and what is God like and how can I have a relationship with Him, I think just spending time in the Psalms would be great. So depending on the most pressing need in a man's life, I think we could identify several books um, that would um, that would really be beneficial to, to do exactly what you did with James, just to immerse yourself in on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting little story, Sam. I've got a relative who uh, does not know the Lord, but I was talking to her the other day and just talking about her faith and her future and so forth and encouraged her to start reading the Bible. And I said, start in the book of John. And and, she, and she, out of nowhere, she said, oh, I love John. <laughs> I said, well, uh, dive into John's book. She said, I like the way John writes. Well, I didn't. I guess she's doing a little reading that I wasn't aware of. Uh, why is John a good place to gravitate to? You know, that is probably the answer that most people would give. In fact, if you, uh, whenever you have a new Christian, they say, where should I start in the Bible? Most people will send them to John. And I think the reason for that is because of the way it portrays Jesus. Uh, it so clearly identifies him as the, um, the second person of Godhead who's come in human flesh. You know, John one fourteen, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it unfolds the identity of Jesus. Uh, it shows his, um, his heart for his people. And when you come into chapters 13 through 17, where he's with the disciples in the upper room, and he talks about this relationship of intimacy with the God of the universe, which is just a mind-blowing concept. Um, and just his portrayal of the uh, sufferings of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection. So I think it's primarily because of the way it portrays Jesus. Now, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke obviously portray him exceptionally well and inherently just as much as John. But uh, John just has, like that, that individual said, has a way of writing that makes Jesus come alive. We see him as a real person, both human and divine. And uh, I would highly recommend, especially if it's a new believer, that they spend a lot of time in John. Sam, what translation of the Bible do you uh, steer men to? Well, there are there are a number of different. There are basically um, a couple of translations. I prefer the English Standard Version, the ESV. Um, certainly, the uh, King James is <clears throat> very very reliable especially the New King James, that brings it a little bit more into uh, the language of our day, because some of that archaic King James language is, a, is difficult for some people to navigate. Uh, <clears throat> the New American Standard is exceptionally good. It's very literal. Um, I like the ESV because it's, it's both literal. It seeks to provide a word-for-word rendering of the text, but it also uh, is fluid from a literary point of view. It's good to read. It's not stodgy. It's not wooden, but it's also very true uh, to the text. Uh, I know a lot of people like the NIV. Uh, It's good as well. I personally, though, for for pastors, I recommend the ESV. Um, I I just have fallen in love with it since it came out, what, about a little over 20 years ago now. And uh, and I have just that's the that's the translation we use in our church. Um, but again, whether whichever it is, New King James, uh, 
you know, New American Standard, ESV, NIV, they're all good. I like the ESV. I think it's most reliable. I, I love the translation philosophy. If people are wondering what that means, if you just get an ESV and you read the opening pages, they talk about the translation philosophy. In other words, why do they keep certain words in the text um, and why are certain phrases rendered in the way they are? And I think they'll find that very appealing. And I I highly recommend the ESV. Dr. Sam Storms is our guest. He's in Oklahoma City. The book, Daily Strength. We've got more with Sam. Stay with us on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Dr. Sam Storms is our guest. We're talking about his book, Daily Strength, a devotional for men. Sam, why is it hard? I think this is accurate for most Christian men uh, to have so much difficulty in sharing their faith with non-believers. So, what, what are your thoughts? I think perhaps the primary reason is um, a misconception that most men have of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a Christian male. Uh, I'm sure that women might identify with what I'm about to say, but I think it's especially true with men. We have become, in our society, obsessed with personal public image. How do people see us? How do they think of us? Um, are they impressed? Or can, we, um, can we garner their respect and their admiration? And uh, we, I think sometimes men are so consumed by the image they project and how it's going to affect maybe even their professional lives that they don't want to do anything that might be upsetting to others. They don't want to put other, they don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. Uh, they don't want to be perceived as a religious fanatic. Um, and so I think they're silent. You know, there's this, um, I think part of the problem is there's this image out there of what real masculinity is. I mean, we're hearing a lot about it today. People are writing books about it. And they think that to be a real man, you have to be exceptionally wealthy and highly influential. That you have to be uh, autonomous. You know, you're your own person, uh, self-made, uh, sexually liberated, self-reliant. All of these things that you know our society constantly holds over the heads of men and say, "Look, this is what you need to aspire to. This is the model, the image that you need to attain." And if people, if men buy into that lie. They're not going to want to risk looking foolish for Jesus. They're not going to want to risk uh, maybe saying something that would be offensive, because after all, the gospel is offensive. But if we understand our identity as men, as those whom God has created in His image, and we realize that our sense of security and significance is wrapped up in our relationship with Jesus, and not with how successful we are, not with how athletically gifted we may be, not with how you know physically handsome and appealing we might uh, come across as. I think once we understand who we are in Christ, um, I, I think that will liberate a lot of men to be more bold in their sharing of their uh, faith. I mean, there's a, for example, in this um, this book there <clears throat> there's a an article about a man's identity, and I think it's so good because it awakens men to all right, who am I supposed to be? 
what am I, what am I, what's the standard to which I'm conforming my life? And of course, the answer to that is the standard is Jesus. Um, so that's the primary reason why men don't share their faith. And that, by the way, there's a second reason. I think they're scared that they might be asked the question for which they don't have an answer. In other words, it's largely biblical ignorance. It's illiteracy. They just don't understand the scriptures, and they're afraid that, you know, the person they're talking to is going to say, well, what about this? What about that? And they're going to look stupid. Like, well, God, I, don't want, I don't want to be exposed as ignorant and not having answers. And so I think all those factors kind of play into the silence of so many men when it comes to sharing their faith. Uh, Dr. Sam Storms is with us. Uh, what's your advice to men about how to pick the right church in their community to attend? What should they be looking for? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> and the reason why I am glad is because having come out of COVID, I have been confronted on almost a daily basis with the reasons why people either have left one church, whether it's mine, or come to my church. And you ask them, and the answers they give are so disappointing. Um, I would say, first of all, you need to ask the question, what does this church believe? What are, what are, their, what are their theological and doctrinal and ethical standards? Uh, do they affirm the infallibility of Scripture? Do they, are they gospel-centered? Does the gospel permeate all that they do? Does it permeate the preaching, the praying, the, the singing? Uh, so that's the first thing, I think, is the theological, biblical integrity of a church. Um, you know, so many people, uh, and, and I don't want to be misunderstood in what I'm about to say. Having community and personal relationships is really important. But if you have community and you're hanging out with all your friends at a church, but the Word of God is not being preached, and if it is being preached, it is being preached incorrectly, that community is not going to help you, and you're not going to be helping others. So I think the first foundational question is, what is, that's why when I go on church websites, the first thing I do is I look up what, what we believe, what's our statement of faith, and do I see that reflected in the ministry and the preaching? Um, I think also very important is the governance of the church. Um, is it governed biblically? Is it, does it have, for example, this is my own conviction, a plurality of male elders leading the church? Um, is it committed to the community? Does it have outreach that is effectively uh, touching uh, the surrounding neighborhoods? And then, of course, it is important to ask the question of community. Is this a place where my, I and my family can uh, be built up and encouraged and held accountable? Um, all of those things factor in. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed, it's so sad, I'm sure you've probably seen it in Orlando, you find out why people leave one church and go to another, it's because of their mask policy. I want to say to folks, are you kidding me? You're leaving your church because you didn't like the way they handled the COVID pandemic, or you're going to another church because you like the way they did it? Uh, you know, if you're going to leave a church, leave because they deny the deity of Christ. Uh, go to a church because they affirm gospel centrality. But sometimes the decisions people make on why to choose a church are really disheartening and sad. So I would just say, where do they stand theologically on the Scriptures? Are they gospel-centered? Do they exalt Christ in every arena? Are they well-governed on, uh, on biblical principles? 
Um, do they encourage people to grow in their faith? Do they hold you accountable in community? All these things, I think, are, are things that people should look for in a church. Tell me about your church. Yeah, Bridgeway's been here since 1994. Um, interesting you caught me at this particular time. I'm finishing up my 14-year pastorate here, and in August, or actually September 1st of this year, I'll be stepping down. Uh, <clears throat> my successor is in place. Um, we're a church of about, um, if everybody came on a Sunday, we'd have about 1,000 adults and two, 300 kids. Um, we're a very gospel-centered church. Uh, we're part of the Acts 29 network, which is uh, not a denomination. It's a church. It's a kind of a network of like-minded churches committed to planning churches. So <clears throat> if you came on a Sunday morning, for example, um, you know, we, I preach about 40 minutes and we go line upon line. In fact, I'm preaching through the book of Romans. And, uh, this coming Sunday, I think is my 58th week in Romans and I'm in really? chapter 15. Wow. Um, so, and then we have vibrant worship. We have prayer ministry. Uh, we have evangelistic outreach. Uh, we have probably 35 or 40 small groups, uh, all around the city. So we're a pretty vibrant, I think, well-rounded church, and uh, it's been my honor and privilege to serve these people for these past 14 years. What do you want people to uh, take from our chat here about your book, Sam? Uh, when they go up to Amazon and order Daily Strength, uh, what uh, what do you tell them? What's the mission? I'd say don't just buy it, read it. <laughs> when you buy it, commit yourself. Come, come, Just come before the Lord and say, Lord, you know my tendencies, you know my habits, you know the temptations I face, you know how I struggle to find time for, for things that are most important. It Give me the power, Spirit of God, give me the power and the strength to commit myself on a daily basis, to just taking five minutes, that's all it takes to read each of these devotionals, one a day, five minutes in your Word, to meditate on the Scripture, to reflect on the truths that are being shared, and to pray that the Spirit of God will begin to produce this in my life. So, again, I, th- I just think the commitment to actually uh, read the devotionals, read the text of Scripture, pray these truths into your own life is the most important thing that I would leave with our listeners. And, folks, when you go up and buy a copy of Sam Storm's Daily Strength, I, <clears throat> I want to tell you about my latest book. It's out. It's called Every Day is Game Day. And uh, it's a 365-day devotional for anybody who loves sports. It starts, everyone starts with a sports story, a sports anecdote, and then leads into the devotional material. So while you're ordering Daily Strength by Sam Storms, uh, go get a copy of Every Day is Game Day. Pat Williams, Mark Atterbury put it out. Uh, Folks, we got more after this. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long. To the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Dr. Sam Storms, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Daily Strength. Uh, he was in Oklahoma City. We stay in the Midwest. We shoot right over to Lincoln, Nebraska. And we found Jake Metter there, editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy. Uh, his book is called What Are Christians For? 
Life Together at the End of the World. Uh, Jake, welcome to Orlando. And I got to tell you, the title of that book sounds very, very, very interesting. What's going on? What's what's going on? Um, what's going on with the title? Yes, and this book. What what's the story here? What, what what's the what's the background? So, the first book I wrote was kind of a friend of mine described it as like the Benedict Option for evangelicals. Um, and this book, same friend said, is kind of like Catholic social doctrine for evangelicals. So it's trying to look at kind of the social conditions we have now, particularly as this kind of post-Cold War world seems to be coming apart at the seams, um, and just ask the question, what does Christian faithfulness and Christian commitment to neighbor look like in these circumstances? Jake, I want to ask you about the introduction. Whole life politics at the end of the world. What's that mean? Um. Yeah, so I I tell the story of a Catholic priest in South Africa who lives a very ordinary, quiet, faithful life as a pastor for about 50 years in the area, um, preaching. I mean, he was Catholic, so the things Catholic priests would do, hearing confession, administering sacraments, all of that. Um, And yet, there was this one moment in his life where a close friend of his, a white journalist um, named Donald Woods, was trying to raise awareness about um, what the South African police were doing to black South Africans. Um, in particular, they had murdered a black South African activist named Steve Biko. Um, and so Woods was trying to raise awareness of this and was being subjected to a really extreme intimidation campaign by the police um, and feared for his life, feared for his children's lives, his wife. And so he made arrangements to flee the country. And Father Ted, this priest that I talk about, um, gave Woods his passport to escape. And so he put his own life on the line um, as well, because if Woods had been caught, they would have found Father Ted's passport, and they would have known that he was also involved. And so I used Father Ted as a way of talking about a Christian faith that is committed to ordinary day-to-day piety, is also deeply engaged in the pursuit of justice, and is willing to take risks for those causes when we're called to do it. Um, Uh, I want you to talk about uh, the opening of your book, An Immense Inheritance, A Christian Account of Nature. Fill us in. (laughs) Yes. So the argument I make in that chapter is that um, there is a kind of natural moral order to the world that is no less real than the laws of gravity, the law of gravity, the laws of physics. Um, it kind of adheres within reality, within the world. Um, and when we lose track of that, when we instead get this idea that reality is, uh, Joe Rigney uses the illustration of Plato, when we think that reality is Plato, um, really all we're left with is power claims over who gets to shape the Plato. And we're seeing that play out almost daily in our politics right now, right? Like, there's not any kind of fixed grounding that we agree upon for our political lives. So all we have left to do is argue over who has power and who gets to do what with power. Um, And what I want to argue for is a sense of a a recovery of a really robust sense of nature. Um, First, because it gives us something in common that we're reasoning about together, 
instead of just arguing back and forth over who gets power and what they get to do with it. Um, but then also for Christians in particular, if we recover a robust idea of natural law, we can, I think, recover a certain kind of reality to our faith um, that I think it's very easy, particularly in this context, to feel that Christianity is kind of disconnected from the realities of day-to-day life. A lot of people can't articulate why Christianity teaches what it does about marriage, for example, a lot of churchgoers. Um, and as we recover a more robust idea of natural law and of the natural order, I think it can help people be able to make connections between things they just see in the world as they're going about their day-to-day lives, looking around, um, and the things that Christianity teaches. And so I think it also helps um, ground, strengthen, solidify um, individual faith and understanding of how their faith relates to their day-to-day life. Uh, now, uh, Jake, tell us about your second topic, the great uprooting, race and the end of nature. Yeah, so I think if you bring up the argument today in a lot of conservative circles that we've lost the idea of natural law, we've lost a kind of thick sense of what nature is. A lot of people can nod along. Um, but what I found as I was doing a lot of reading for this book um, is that I think the origins of some of this stuff are actually kind of counterintuitive to what a lot of conservatives would think. Um, a lot of people are going to want to talk about the sexual revolution or maybe the French revolution if you want to go back a little bit further. Um, but the argument I make in the chapter is that actually a lot of this stuff is starting in the colonial era. It's starting as the new world is, as it was called, is discovered and settled. Um, and what's going on there is you have these conquistadors from Spain and Portugal and then later other settlers from England and France and so on. Um, and they're coming to the new world and they're encountering like large cities. They're in, in some cases, they're encountering established ways of life. They are encountering cultures that have been there for ages. Um, they're encountering ways of relating to land that are the product of a lot of time and knowledge and attentiveness. Um, but if you read the way they write about it, they don't seem to see that. They see wealth. Um, so if you want to talk about seeing like a natural order versus Plato, when these colonialists arrive in these new places, and it continues centuries later in Africa, um, they see Plato and they see the chance to reshape it to their own ends, according to their own desires, for their own good, and they don't really seem to comprehend that they are depriving human beings of their agency, of their lives in many cases, certainly their way of life. Um, And so the argument I make in the chapter is that if you really want to understand where does this kind of, well, reality is whatever I say it is, attitude come from, which we see today so clearly on issues like transgender questions, um, where does that attitude come from? I want to say it actually has its origins in colonialism and race. Uh, My guest, and I want to uh, just make sure you know that it's Jake Meter, Metter, uh, he is in Oklahoma, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. We're talking about what are Christians for. And, Jake, uh, here's the third topic. It's called the unmaking of places, the fruit of industrialism. What does that mean? Where does that fit? Yeah, so 
once you start reducing God's created order down to stuff, um, it becomes very hard. It's kind of opening Pandora's box. You can't reduce North America down to Plato and then have England stay as something like thicker and with a stronger sense of connection between people and place and ways of living and culture and all those things. Um, that way of reducing reality to just mere matter is going to spread. And so my argument is that the Industrial Revolution is another kind of development in this, um, where, again, you have really well-developed ways of living that suited families really well. A lot of workers in pre-industrial England, they worked out of their homes alongside their wife and their children. Um, it was, often these things were family enterprises, if you were a tradesman. And what happens in industrialism is all of that gets destroyed in the name of efficiency. Um, and all of those workers get displaced out of their homes and put into factories. And work, which had had this broad conception of, like, my work relates to my place within society. It relates to my relationship to neighbor. It's a huge part of my life with my family. All of that gets basically obliterated, and work just becomes what I do to make a living in the factory. Um, and so all of the benefits that come from those really rich webs of relationships that you just had naturally because of how their economic lives were structured, all of those things get uprooted when we move into factories, um, when you have people that had been tradesmen making a decent living at home, now probably making less in wages for a long time. Eventually it got better, but for a long time making less in wages. And so they lost a way of life. Um, they became far more dependent on capital to pay for their living, and they had less capital. So it destroys a way of living that had functioned for people for a long time, and it replaced it with making money. And that's not a very buying, um, rewarding way of living. And yet that's what we did persistently over the Industrial Revolution for a long time. Jake, tell us about, <clears throat> well, we're not going to be able to cover all of your topics, but I do, I want you to talk about the unmaking of the real wonder among the institutions. Uh, can you unravel that for us? Um, yeah. So eventually what you end up with as all of these kind of revolutions continue and reality becomes more and more and more hollowed out. Um, reduced down to just raw material, um, is eventually reality kind of stops being all that interesting. It stops being worth exploring, worth delighting in. Um, and what replaces that is this kind of culture of institutions that are now stepping in to do all of the necessary work that families used to do, that villages used to do, that guilds used to do for workers. Um, and what institutions are going to do, and I'm taking a lot of this from Ivan Illich, who is an Eastern European kind of tech critic, um, what institutions are going to do is they're essentially going to stuff reality as they see it into a box, and then they're going to give that box to the people within the institution and say, this is reality, open it up, look around. And so you never get that kind of unmediated encounter with the world, um, that would have just been, I mean, even for me growing up in the 90s in Nebraska, like, I had friends that lived 10 minutes out of town, and we'd be running around in creeks and, 
kind of in these wooded areas behind their house, unsupervised for hours at a time sometimes. Um, those kind of encounters with nature and reality are much less common these days, I think, because we pass our, li- our whole lives through institutions. We're born in a hospital, then we go to a daycare, then we go to a school, then we go to college, then we go to work for a corporation, then when you're aging, you go to a nursing home. Like, we just, every part of our life is kind of packaged and supervised and made possible by these impersonal institutions that we don't have a lot of agency within or a lot of connection to. And it leads to a very impoverished experience of the world. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a very quick summary of the chapter. Now I want you to move on to uh, topic number six, Against the Revolution, the beginning of Christian social doctrine. What's that all about, uh, Jake? Yeah, so... The revolution is a concept that some Dutch Calvinists developed in the late 1800s. And what they meant by it is this assertion that reality is basically whatever we say it is. And so what they're trying to do, and the folks doing this are like Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink and that crowd, um, they are trying to develop an idea of Christian social theory, I mean, modern Europe is a very different place um, than medieval Europe. So they have to figure out, you can't just, like, return to medieval Europe. It's not an option. You have to figure out something new that functions in modern Europe. And so they were trying to do that within um, the Dutch Republic and then also trying to help other Christians abroad think about how to do these things. So, like, Kuiper came over here and lectured at Princeton um, and Bovink actually also gave lectures at Princeton a few years later. Um, so they're trying to figure out how can you live in the modern world and yet not live as if reality is whatever we say it is, as if there really is some kind of fixed like order that God made that we are obliged to submit ourselves to. Um, how do you live that way under modern circumstances? Jake Meter is our guest. We're talking about his book, What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. We have another segment with Jake. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, You're listening uh, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay tuned all day long. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. I'm visiting with Jake Meador. He's in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. We're talking about his book, What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. Uh, Jake, tell us about uh, Topic 7, The Earth is Our Mother on Christianity, Land, and Animals. Uh, What's that all mean? Yeah, so... There's an argument um, Hannah Arendt makes in one of her books where she says that essentially what defines the modern West is first a turning away from God our Father, and then subsequently an attempt to escape the Earth our Mother. Um, And so she talks a lot about the space race, which was going on when she was writing. Um, And I found that a really striking image, but I also wasn't sure what to think about using that kind of language to describe the Earth. 
But then um, a friend of mine pointed out this sermon by Jonathan Edwards to me, where Jonathan Edwards actually uses that language. Um, he's commenting on Job 1, where um, Job is saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return, um, after these curses have fallen on him. And Edwards makes the point that, you know, we read that without thinking about it and think he's talking about return, like coming from his biological mother's womb and going back. But Edwards is like, well, that doesn't make sense because you don't return to your biological mother's womb when you die. Um, what you return to is the ground. And so Edwards makes the case that the mother Job is talking about there is actually the earth. Um, we come from the womb of our mother, the earth. We arise from the life of the world. It's the food that it provides for us, the air, the water it gives to us. Um, we enter the world with nothing, and when we leave, we return to that same womb with nothing, um, which is what Edwards says Job, Job is talking about in that verse. So I thought that was interesting. And then I found John Paul II also referring to the earth as our mother in some of his writings. And so from that, I just kind of developed this argument, like it's actually legitimate to think about the earth as our mother as a Christian, not in like a kind of pagan way, but in the way that Edwards and John Paul are talking about it. Um, and one of the applications of that is um, think about what it means to honor one's parents. Um, as you age, you you don't necessarily obey your mother and father in the same way when you're an adult, but you're still obliged to honor them. You still owe them something. And so I think in a similar way, we can say that there's a certain kind of indebtedness that we owe to the world um, because it sustains our lives, because we live from it. And so we honor that obligation by living in a way that is good for the planet, that helps to help helps it to flourish alongside us. Um, and this is actually a very biblical theme, something you see a lot in the Old Testament especially, is this idea that land is a gift that God gives for the blessing of the world, what's going on with Abraham, but also that when um, God's people are faithless, or really when people are faithless, um, judgment comes, and one of the forms of judgment is that they lose the land. And so I think you can make the, the case that the health of people and the health of land is very bound up together in the Old Testament. And we need to recover that idea as we think about what it means to have a better relationship to the world. Um, natural law isn't just a kind of cudgel we use when we want to argue about sexuality. It actually should also cut against us when we think about land use um, and environmental concerns. Now, Jake, let's uh, <clears throat> talk about this topic, a vision of Christian belonging. Uh, what, what, what are you sharing with us there? Um, so I think one of the consequences of all of the changes we've made in the world, of all these revolutions that the first half of the book is about, is a crisis of loneliness. Um, and you can I mean, get on Google and poke around, and you will find study after study after study documenting this epidemic of loneliness we have in America right now. Mm -hmm. And it was bad before COVID. It's worse now. Um, and so I think something that the church can offer to people is a place where they belong. Uh, marriage can offer that as well. And so Christianity, because it locates us in the world rightly, it locates us in relationship to God rightly, it helps us know how to relate to one another and be able to give and receive love um, 
give and receive of affectionate attentiveness um, and care. Like we have a crisis of care in this country right now as well. Um, and so what I'm trying to do in that chapter is just sketch out how um, family and church can both help create belonging for people who are quite desperate for it. Um, and I want to talk about family and church um, because there will be a lot of people that don't get married that are celibate. And we need to have good news for them about belonging and community life as well. Um, so one of the things that I was really delighted to find as I was doing reading for the chapter is read a bunch of treatises by church fathers on celibacy and virginity. Um, and one of them, Ambrose of Milan, he says that, so he, he looks at the Virgin Mary, who quite literally, through the incarnation, draws the life of heaven down into the world through her obedience to God and giving birth to Christ. And Ambrose uses that to argue that um, celibate Christians, through their witness, through ordering their lives to God, through giving themselves wholly to God, they draw the life of heaven down into the world in a way that married Christians cannot. And so there's actually a really high calling and sense of belonging, even for the celibate, and not just for married people. And so I wanted to try and develop both my guest is Jake Meter. We're talking about his book, What Are Christians For? Uh, Jake, tell us about the world in cracked icons as we get towards the end of your book, Wonder, Death, and the End of All Things. Yeah. So one of the concerns I had as I was thinking about the book is that I want to recover a strong sense of nature. I don't want to do it in a way that's naive or blind to suffering. Um, and so in that last, or in the second to last chapter, I talked about the story of my, my parents. Um, my dad suffered a traumatic brain injury about six years ago. Technically wasn't a stroke, but basically did all the damage that a really, really bad stroke would do. Um, so he's now disabled, um, has very little use of the left side of his body. Um, he can like feed himself and brush his teeth and, things like that, but he's just limited in what he can do. And so I wanted to talk about, like, do you still have this strong sense of a good natural order um, when you confront that kind of suffering? And can people confront that kind of suffering and remain faithful to God in the midst of it? And the answer I give, based on observing my parents for now six and a half years, is yes, they can. Um God's provided for them, and it's been excruciatingly difficult, and it still is. And yet, um, both of my parents would say that they've gained more than they've lost through this experience. And so that chapter is just trying to um, offer people a picture of um, a quiet, humble, Christ-dependent um, Christian life under extremely difficult circumstances, such that we can say, like, all of this stuff we've set up to this point is true, and it is still true, even when this kind of calamity happens. Um, so that's what I was trying to do with that chapter, is kind of give the, like, ultimate stress test I could come up with, um, just on a personal level. Um, and use that as a way of talking about kind of the outer limits of some of the things I'm writing about in the book. 
Jake, we've got about a minute left. The last topic, politics beyond accomplishment toward a politics of care. Uh, fill us in. Yeah. Um, we should be more concerned with care of neighbor than of exalting ourselves. That's basically the chapter. Um, what we achieve, by what we do, by what we accomplish, by how much we earn. And that's a really cruel way of living. And I think Christians can offer world something better um, through modeling Christian love and Christian care for those both inside the church and those outside. Jake Meir has been our guest. Uh, Jake is the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy. He lives in Lincoln, Nebraska. We've been talking about his book, What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. Well, folks, we've got to wrap up uh, right after these messages. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. We'll be right back for the wrap-up. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. I'm so glad you could join us here on the uh, Power Hour. Uh, Dr. Sam Storms, our guest in the first segment, talking about his book, Daily Strength, and then came Jake Meter. Uh, what are Christians for? Um, I, I do want to remind you, folks, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can be a big help. Uh, go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. Orlando has become the 17th largest media market in North America and growing. We're ready to be a Major League Baseball city, uh, but we need to hear from so many of you just saying, good idea, I'd like to do this. We need to show the commissioner's office in New York that uh, Orlando is ready to take another step forward as a professional sports town. OrlandoDreamers.com. Well, folks, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. God bless. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs> 